Our guest is the leader of the Labour Party, Chris Hipkins. Mr Hipkins became Prime Minister at the start of this year, following the resignation of Jacinda Ardern. He's been an MP since 2008 and has been Minister of Health, Education and Police. He was Minister for the COVID pandemic response. On latest polling, the Labour Party would need the Greens to party Māori and New Zealand First support to form a government. Mr Hipkins has ruled out working with New Zealand First. As of yesterday, more than two million eligible voters had yet to cast a ballot, well over half of potential voters. Chris Hipkins is in our Auckland studio. Dina welcome. Great to be here. Uh, thanks for your time. The first question is an opportunity for you to pitch in 90 seconds or so, please, your case to be in government and to be Prime Minister. Labour's got a progressive plan that's going to lead New Zealand forward, not take New Zealand backwards. We're lifting children out of poverty, we're tackling climate change, we're building record numbers of new public homes, and we've got a plan to support New Zealanders with the cost of living. I think about extending 20 hours free early childhood education to two-year-olds, introducing four weeks of paid partners' leave, extending working for families to give families an extra $25 per week, taking GST off fruit and vegetables and making free basic dental care uh, available to all New Zealanders under the age of 30 with a plan to roll that out further. We want to lead New Zealand forward. It's been a tough time. We are making progress. This is not the election to put all that at risk with a government that wants to take New Zealand backwards. Okay. When you became Prime Minister earlier this year, you had your policy bonfire. Two of them, actually. Labour's jettisoned so much policy. Are you at risk of people asking what is left to vote for? Well, I've just outlined some very good reasons to vote for Labour. They're done. But, but, they're done. So looking forward, well, so no, much not of done. that program's gone. Paid, paid partners leave, for example, is something new. And actually, people listening to this will know the value of having you know, you know, the partner at home for the first four weeks of a child's life. Free basic dental care is something that is a massive gap in New Zealand's health system. And we want to close that gap. Um, taking GST or fruit and vegetables will make a difference to households when they go to the supermarket. I know cost of living is a major issue for Kiwi families. That extra $25 a week for working families with children, that's going to make a difference okay. to a household's so, budget. So they are existing policies that you want to introduce, and they are cost of living focused policies. My point is a lot of these bigger picture issues that you were campaigning on were jettisoned. And your rallying call throughout much of the campaign is that a change of government would bring all these negative things. Bigger picture, what is Labour's plan for a country facing so many challenges? Well, we're going to continue to lift children out of poverty. We're going to continue to tackle climate change. We're going to continue to build record numbers of public homes. These are things that matter. So let's take, you know, children living in poverty. 77,000 children have been lifted out of poverty out of our, under our government because of proactive action. The National Party's most recent announcements mean that benefits will be cut. Thousands more children will end up in poverty. We've got our climate emissions reducing three years in a row. Again, the National Party wants to cut all of the things that we've put in place that are doing that. We're building well, new houses because we've actually. got a housing you, crisis. You, you've cut some of those initiatives actually. What I've done is refocus our climate spending on the issue, on the things that are going to make the biggest so reductions in our emissions. So were you spending on things that weren't going to make a difference? There were some things that weren't going to make the difference that, um, that I think you, you would expect for that level of spend. And I'll give you one example. That what we, we colloquially called it the clash for clunk, cash for clunkers scheme, where people could trade in an old combustion engine vehicle and switch to an, to an EV. That was going to cost uh, nearly half a billion dollars, and it was actually going to do very very little to reduce so that our was emissions. wasted spending. 
No, well, because we never did it. Because we we did the feasibility study, we investigated what it was going to do. I looked at that and said, no, for that money, we could actually get a much greater reduction in emissions by spending it what, on things. Is- by spending it on things like um, decarbonising New Zealand steel, decarbonising Fonterra. Yep. Those are things that are actually Cor- going to reduce wealthy, our emissions. Some would say, uh, I don't call them corporate wealth. We have to get our emissions down, and one way or the other, we're going to have to pay to reduce our emissions. So I would rather pay to reduce the emissions of big New Zealand polluters than pay someone offshore in another. Other country to reduce just emissions while we're on that, let's just square an issue that just sits in the background as we talk about affordability and the fiscal holes and everything else. As things stand, New Zealand is not on track to meet its pledges for uh, climate change by 2030. And the estimates coming out of Treasury on this see the bill we would be up for anywhere between $3 billion best case and $24 billion worst case. Will you honour that pledge and will you pay? So we are on track. We've set out emissions reductions budgets. We are on track to meet our first budget. The second budget, we ne- we're in the process of putting together the implementation plan for how we meet our now, this second This is 2026 budget. on. We've got yeah, to be right. to a level that we have pledged to in our nationally determined targets by 2030, and if not, we have a multi-billion dollar bill. Will you honour that? So, so that next emissions reduction budget, the second budget, is actually going to be a very challenging one. That's, but that's where things like... Um, the New Zealand steel deal makes a difference. That's going to, because the emissions reductions we'll get from that will kick in in that second sure, budget period. A that's going to be, but that's going to cut one okay. percent of New Zealand's overall emissions. So we, you know, we get a few more of those, and actually we will be on track to meet our second budget. But it's going to require us taking some decisive action. Where in your policy are the policies to boost productive? economic growth, to encourage struggling businesses, to encourage new startups, to grow the pie, so to speak. Where in your policies are those? So I've set out an economic plan that's got a, a couple of headline issues. One is I think we should be the world's most sustainable food producer. And that is going to be great for New Zealand exports. It's going to be good for New Zealand businesses. And it's going to create good, well-paying jobs. I think we should be a world leader in renewable energy, renewable electricity in particular. That's going to create good, well-paying jobs and intellectual property that we can sell to the rest of the world. I think we need to continue to So what are the back- policies we need to continue to back our creative sectors, our film and television sectors. We've just done a review of the government support for those and we've made some changes to make sure that we're still attracting those big screen film and television productions to New Zealand. But we've also put in the gaming uh, subsidies because actually the gaming sector, the video gaming sector, sits hand in hand with our film and television sector in terms okay. of the creative so, so people that industries, it brings. But what would move the dial for any business person, any farmer out there in the primary sector actually, move the dial to enable them to grow returns. Research and development, number one, is going to apply, is going to, is going to benefit everybody. We are innovators in New Zealand. And what's the policy? We've got a research and development tax credit. We've introduced it. We're going to keep it because it will make a difference. It's supporting businesses who are innovating. Okay. Your own finance minister is on record dissing the move to take GST off fruit and veggies that you subsequently introduced. His exact words, quote, an absolute boondoggle, unquote, to get through, referencing the benefits the wealthy would get on many products rather than the lowest incomes. Economists are united in arguing it's a boondoggle and that supermarkets are likely to hoover up the most benefit. You just told me that you 
jettison certain policies based on evidence, why did you introduce this one? Because it's going to make a difference to households who are struggling with the cost of living. Now, $5 a week of fresh fruit and veggies might not seem like much to the economists who are writing those opinion pieces, but I can tell you down at my local pack and save, for the families who are walking through the fruit and veggie aisle without buying anything, that $5 can make an enormous difference. They're not buying raspberries and snow peas and, in your finance minister's own words, whole beetroot aren't targeted policies far more effective? And second, how will you guarantee that the supermarkets won't simply up the prices and gobble it? Well, that's why we're putting in place a grocery commissioner, among other reasons, to make sure that we got proper competition in supermarkets and that the benefits of savings, like removing GST of fruit and veggies, are being passed on to consumers. Um, but I, I would also note that it's one of 10 things that we've set out that are going to support families with the cost of living. Things like boosting working for families, giving uh, you know families with children in work another $25 a week. That's also going to give them more choices. The question is whether this is lost revenue for marginal gain. Uh, it, it's going to make a difference for New Zealand families and you know every little bit helps at the moment. You've cited the cost of living crisis as the an element of the policy bonfire earlier including uh, as we said uh, some climate change initiatives you've clarified why you believe you dropped those but how much of that persistent domestic inflation component in New Zealand CPI figure the stickiest bit of that high inflation figure is the result of persistently high government spending on your watch spending that is 80% higher than when it was when Labour took office in reality Catherine very little actually if you look at the things that are driving inflation in New Zealand and around the world, it's things like higher fuel prices. Sorry, sorry, I just clarified that I'm talking about the domestic component of CPI, which has stayed high as the international component has come down, bringing down the headline figure. Yeah, so I think you're probably falling into the National Party's trap of thinking uh, no, that, I'm not. Thinking that, that tradable and non-tradable inflation can somehow be separated and that non-tradable inflation is all I'm affected sorry. only by the domestic statistics pressures. The department and others separate out tradable and non-tradable yes, inflation. And, and, and tradable and non-tradable inflation is also affected by higher fuel prices. So it's 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 just wrong to say that non-tradable inflation means all it's all government spending. Are you it saying just that isn't. a government that is a substantial proportion of the New Zealand economy, that government spending that has increased that much and stayed that high is not a factor in domestic inflation? Well, let's talk about the sorts of spending that we're talking about. We're talking about uh, another $150 million a week for superannuitants. We're talking about another $200 million a week for our health system, another hundred million dollars a week for our education system. That means teachers, doctors, nurses, police, others being paid better so that they can actually cope with the cost of living. I think those are good investments. Are being paid 80% better? Um, certainly, well, t- nurses, I think it's about a 40% pay increase. As teachers, it's uh, somewhere around a 30% pay increase under our government. Um, and there are a lot more of them. So on an individual basis, you've got to combine the two things together. There's more of them. We're and being paid better. We're 5,000 nurses short of what we need, actually. There's 5,000 more nurses in there now than there were when okay. we became the government, and we're training more of them. Why, on so many metrics, from reported crime to health to school attendance, to waiting times for court cases, let alone the state of the court buildings themselves, why are so many metrics tracking worse despite that extra spending? 
Well, I mean, let's not forget the huge disruption that the country's faced over the last three years. Let's look at our health system. There has been a global pandemic. Every health system in the world has seen those sorts of metrics go backwards during that time. School attendance went backwards because kids stayed at home because they had COVID-19 and we were telling them to stay home when they had COVID-19. There are some aftershocks, some after effects of COVID-19 and youth disengagement's one of them and we're seeing that in the crime statistics as well. That's where we need proactive action to get those kids back engaged in their learning. We're putting more attendance offices in schools to get kids back into their learning and to properly support them to get back into their learning because that's actually going to keep them out of trouble. How would you describe the state of the health sector? It's certainly under a lot of pressure and it's been under sustained pressure right the way through the pandemic and coming out the other side of it but I believe it's improving. And how much of that strain is to do with imposing a restructuring on a health system that was having to cope with the pandemic? Um, Not much, actually. I think restructuring the health system was long overdue. I'm not going to stand for a system that's a postcode lottery, where if you're in Timaru, you get a different standard of healthcare to if you're in South Auckland. Actually, wherever you are in the country, you should get a consistent access to healthcare. You should get a consistent waiting time, because there will always be waiting lists, but it should be consistent across the country. A a multi-billion dollar restructuring and set up not one but two new bureaucracies to achieve two things. One, an IT system that communicates right across the health system and across the country and second, dealing with the postcode lottery by boards working together. Do we really need a restructuring on this scale to achieve those two things? I believe we do and actually you've just hit the nail on the head. Things like having one IT system for the health system across the country means that if you show up at a hospital in Timaru or you show up at a hospital in Palmerston North you'll actually get a consistent standard of care. That's what a unified health system should be able to deliver. Could you not have achieved that without the restructuring? Well, someone still has to pay for that, and you want to do that in the most efficient way possible. Doing that on a national basis, rather than having 20, 20 different DHBs trying to negotiate something, is clearly going to deliver a, a faster, more efficient outcome. The debt situation is such now that just funding interest on it is more than the entire spending on police. There's at least four years before either of the biggest parties believes they can get out of that, and that's potentially optimistic given the pressures that the country's under. Is there enough tax revenue under our existing tax system to fund the level of services New Zealanders want? Yes, overall there is. It comes down to a question of priorities and choices. I don't think now is the time for tax cuts because that is actually going to reduce funding available for all of the services and that New Zealanders expect us to be able to deliver. But let's talk about our debt for a moment. New Zealand's debt's still one of the lowest in the OECD. Our debt servicing costs have gone up, no question. Every household paying a mortgage knows that debt servicing costs have gone up in the last two years. But actually, we've still got about half the level of debt relative to the size of the economy that Australia has. We're not voting and a in Australia. Fraction and a fraction here. of what the UK and the We're US and other countries here. We're looking have. at four years before anybody believes they can get back to surplus, and that's optimistic, and, and begin lowering the costs on that debt burden. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to cut public services that New Zealanders are relying on right now. I'm not going to say to teachers, doctors, nurses, police and others that they can't have pay increases because so that means that they won't be able to pay was, their bills. My question to you actually was whether there is enough tax revenue under our existing tax system to fund the level of services New Zealanders want. Uh, Well, I think as we grow the economy, government tax revenue increases, and that gives us more choices around funding public services. So I think growing our economy is the way that we deliver better public services for New Zealanders. That could come straight out of a National or an ACT Party uh, leader. 
Well, no, it won't, because they're proposing to cut entitlements. No, they're no, proposing no. Grow to the cut economy. Taxes. Grow the economy in well, order to achieve services. Is the ev- tax but every, every political fair? party wants to grow the economy. Is the tax system fair, including to all generations in New Zealand? There's always room to improve the fairness of the tax system. How? I don't think, I don't, well, well, for starters, I don't think giving massive tax cuts to those who need it the least. That's the opposition's and policy. How in exactly, your view that's to exactly make it, what it more is. fair? Well, I think we continue to make sure that we're closing the loopholes in the tax system that means that people are avoiding paying their fair share of tax. I've already signalled, for example, I don't think businesses should be able to turn themselves into charities in order to be able to avoid paying their fair share of tax. So that is something that I want us to look at in our next term of Parliament. I think making sure that we're not actually cutting taxes for those on the highest incomes, not bringing back tax breaks for landlords that welfare beneficiaries are going to end up paying for. Again, you're focusing on your opposition's policies just after the the budget, it was revealed your finance minister had drawn up a proposal for a tax switch that would involve a small percentage of New Zealanders paying more tax on net wealth over $5 million for an individual, $10 million for a couple, excluding their family home. And every taxpayer would have had a tax-free first $10,000. For most, it would have been a $20 a week tax cut. Why did you override your finance minister and ditch that policy. We made a collective decision, including the finance minister, we made a collective decision as a cabinet not to proceed with that because when we looked at the advice we would have been taxing unrealised gains and actually those with wealth that's mobile would move that wealth out of New Zealand so that they wouldn't pay the tax. If we were one of the only countries in the world with a wealth tax, it would have resulted in an exodus of wealth from New Zealand. Things like the family farm for example, I think taxing unrealised gains on a family farm wouldn't have been fair or equitable. Okay, you have ruled out wealth taxes, capital gains taxes, etc. coming on your watch ever. Was that a mistake? No, I've ruled out a wealth tax. What I've said around a capital gains tax is that I would only do that if there was a degree of consensus across the parliament on that. And there's a very clear reason for that, Catherine. For a wealth tax to actually deliver benefits for New Zealand, they need to be in place for a long period of time. So one government introducing it and another government repealing it isn't actually going to deliver the benefits that New Zealand needs. So if you were to become Prime Minister, would you actively seek that consensus or a high level of consensus? And what would you consider a high level of consensus? consensus. Oh, if we can get the National Party to agree uh, over the longer term to, a, to, a, re, a, to a, a change in the nature of our tax system so that we were taxing more capital gains and using that money to offset you know, personal income tax, I'd be very open to that. But the thing is, to do that, you need a 10 to 15 year lead time. So you can only do that if there's cross-party support for it. But for you, the idea of any tax on unrealised capital gains, even those who've got 10 million between them excluding their house... You would never consider introducing that, even if it could mean an interest-free first $10,000 for every taxpayer. Well, let me, let me just run through the example of the family farm. So a family's been... Could on you the, not on the, carve on the, out, the, and I know it's unattractive in tax if you have to carve out, but could you not carve out for productive businesses like that? But, but that, then, then you get yourself... In, and then, So this is why we looked at it, because then you get yourself into a world of difficulty about deciding what gets carved out and what Sounds doesn't. Sounds like the fruit and veggies tax, GST, but anyway... Well, it's no, off, it's no, off because, as far as you're concerned. No, because, I mean, the family farm is such a good example because you, the fact that you might have a, uh, some land that's worth more than $10 million doesn't mean that you're in a position to be able to find ready cash every year to basically give the government a share of the value of that land when you're not intending to sell it. So uh, th- I think that just illustrates the challenge with the wealth tax. Chris Hipkins, our guest, the leader of the Labour Party, campaigning for another term as Prime Minister. You're listening to Nine to Noon on uh, NZ National. Delivery 
is another issue that people have raised, and I'm just going to use one example. Could you solve the mystery? What has happened to the two billion dollar mental health package that is now years old. What is it actually, as of today, delivered? Well, there's more than a million counselling sessions have been delivered through the Access and Choice programme. How many we've more been, is that than we've previously? Been, we've None. There were none previously. So one million more, that's one million more than nothing. It's a hell of a lot. So, it's, it's a hell of an expensive bill out of two billion. Well, so keep going. That's but, one but initiative. We're building, we're building a new mental health system from scratch. So we've had to we've had to recruit and train 700 more psychologists, which we've been doing. We've How been, many we've have been, you got? We've been, 700. That's the number right. that I've, I've and got. And, and, and we're continuing to recruit more. We want it so that you people can access free counselling sessions when they need them. We've also got new counsellors going into schools, programmes like Mana Ake and um, uh, and others, which are supporting young people in schools with their mental health Let needs. Me More counsellors in schools because we know young people are particularly susceptible to mental health pressure. But we're building a system from next to nothing. That's not going to happen overnight. So, what percentage of that two billion has been spent on delivered initiatives so far? I don't have that particular breakdown, Catherine, but things like the million extra counselling sessions, it took a while to build up to that number, but we're now delivering tens of thousands of them every week. That's a long way short of $2 billion. Uh, but I, I take it, I appreciate it, I'm not um, by any means minimising it, but actually as a proportion of a years-old package of that size, it would be a very small sum. Why Why are there issues with delivery? Can, can you genuinely explain on why there are issues with delivery in, in this and other areas. What happens? Well, I mean, I don't actually accept that, Catherine. Yes, there are some programmes that the government has put in, has attempted to put in place that haven't been as successful. So Kiwi Build is a good one. Uh, Kiwi Build was a programme to build 100,000 houses. That was an unrealistic target. In reality, it's going to be in the low thousands in terms of the, the number of houses that Kiwi Build will, will deliver. But we've shifted a lot of the emphasis in housing to other areas, like building more public homes. Where You've we've got built more 13, on the state 000. house waiting list than ever. Yeah, and let's let's actually take a step back and look at how that happened. About 15 years ago, in 2008, when the National Party came into government, they simply deleted two categories off the public house waiting list. That was thousands of people who were previously on the waiting list got bumped off the waiting list. Over the years, those same people's housing needs got more and more to the point where they became higher priority and they ended up back on the waiting list again. The way you get your way out of that is to build more public homes. If the last government had built the number of public homes that we are building, we wouldn't have a public house waiting list. Okay, infrastructure. I'm just going to read you the litany. An Auckland sinkhole means sewage is spewing into the Waitamata for God knows how long, closing beaches. Queenstown, the so-called jewel in the tourism crown, has been on a boiled water notice. For weeks, it will be months until a permanent resolution. I know there's been temporary resolution for most uh, residents. The capital's water infrastructure is so bad, 45% leaks straight out of the pipes. Fast-growing towns are at the point in some instances where they can't hook up any new builds to the system. How did Labor's plan for a $140 billion upgrade of water infrastructure over three decades end up in the quagmire that Three Waters became? I think you've absolutely just illustrated why we need affordable water No, no, that's not what reform. I asked you. How did it end up in the quagmire that it became? Oh, let's be frank. I think there was some, a fair degree of dog whistle racism around co-governance that managed to um, unsettle quite a lot of people. And I think well, that explain that... the rationale for co-governance because I don't think many New Zealanders ever 
had an explanation that was accessible to them. Maori, what is, Maori what's have the rationale for it in the delivery of a fundamental infrastructure to, to all New Zealanders? What's the rationale? Maori have established through the courts an interest in water. If we don't recognise that in the way our water entities are governed, then we're effectively extinguishing a property right that's been established so through the courts. So what do you believe will happen? We're that another work, party that, to proceed on large-scale infrastructure involving fresh water without resolving that question of the nature and extent of Maori interests in fresh water. What do you believe will happen? It'll be like the foreshore on seabed, only 10 times bigger. So how was that resolved under Three Waters? Did you get an agreement from your own Maori caucus? Did you get an agreement from iwi leaders that there would be no such action if they were able to have iwi representation on the regional body that selected the membership of the board that oversaw these entities. We believe that that is a way of recognising... Did you the, have a guarantee the, it was a way? Well, it's, it is a way of recognising the legally established right that Māori have in water, um, and we believe that that will avoid a, a further foreshore and seabed-like situation. Why did you never explain that comprehensively to the public? I, I look, I, I've already been on record in saying I think we left Nanai Mahuta to defend this by herself without backup from her colleagues for far too long. I think that is something that we Why should have done better. Why did that happen? Look, I think we should have done it better. I mean, I wasn't the Prime Minister at that time, but I think we shouldn't have let so her, to Jacinda left her out there. So did Jacinda drop the ball on leading a strong and comprehensive explanation of this? I think it's a, it was a collective responsibility. I think all ministers need to accept responsibility for that. I certainly do. Um, I think Nanaia was subject to a lot of racism during that time. And not just dog whistle racism, racism but outright racism. How do you explain, And, and however, I don't think we should have just left her out there um, fronting that without spacking her up. How did you explain... Explain, however, the move to vote for a green SOP that would have entrenched part of the Three Waters legislation, that it still has not been fully explained, um, was, was voted on and then voted out. And we're still not clear whether all of the Cabinet were aware of that entrenchment clause and voted for it or whether they weren't. What that happened? Wa- that was a mistake. It should not have happened. What kind of mistake? Was it a uh, deliberate move? No, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision made by the Labour MPs who were representing us in, in the debating chamber at that time, um, and actually it shouldn't have happened. What of pandemic management, um, what regrets do you have? What would you have done differently? That's a really tricky question, Catherine, because, of course, you know, decisions have consequences and you're making decisions about something like how to manage a global pandemic with a lot of very imperfect information. On balance, I'm very proud of our COVID response, one of the best COVID responses in the world, one of the lowest rates of mortality or death from COVID-19 in the world. That's something to be proud of. But... Along the way, there are always going to be things that you look back on and say, if we'd known what we, now, what we, what we, you know, if we'd known then what we know now, would we have done what it would differently? What you have done? Tick it off. Well, what would let's, have been different? Let's, let's take managed isolation, for example. When we set it up, we thought we were going to be doing it for about eight weeks. We ended up doing it for two and a half years. So we would have set it up on quite a different basis, I think, to the way that we did set up managed isolation. Did you do it for too long, by the way? Uh, I think probably the last few months... Um, the exit from our COVID elimination strategy could have probably been faster in some areas. Was a fundamental failure the length of time it took to secure delivery of the vaccine and did your then health minister and or others have their eye off the ball when it came to really being at the front of the queue? 
Absolutely not, because if you look at the New Zealand's results in terms of vaccination, we have one of the fastest vaccine rollouts in the world. Could have had, that, of, could have had that starting earlier. No, well, if, if you could have magic the vaccines out of nowhere, then maybe. But if the you reali- had talked but, to the people who made an approach to your health minister the day they made an approach to your health minister instead of weeks later, maybe. Catherine, that's simply not true. We got those extra Pfizer vaccines as fast as we possibly could. Pfizer were very clear from the beginning that every other country in the world wanted vaccines at the same rate that we did. We got them as fast as we could. I absolutely can tell you hand on heart from, from being the person who was on the phone to Pfizer on a near you know weekly basis about how we could get more vaccines that we got them about as fast about as we ever could have got. vaccine delivery. Oh, look, we bought four different lots of vaccines. So we bought Pfizer, we bought Moderna, we uh, not Moderna, we bought AstraZeneca, we bought, um, uh, I'm just trying to remember what the other ones were. There was a Johnson & Johnson vaccine and another one. When we bought them, they hadn't even been developed yet. We were buying them uh, on, on, on the hope that they would pan out. Now, the one that we bought the least of, Pfizer, actually ended up being the best of the vaccines, so we ordered more okay. of that. Coalitions, you've ruled out working with Winston Peters on New Zealand First um If approached during coalition negotiations, will you receive that approach? Look, I'll always pick up the phone to anybody, but I'm not going to be going into government with Winston Peters in New Zealand first. He will not form part of any government that I lead as Prime Minister. Can he sit in a position on the crossbenches, offer confidence and supply perhaps, something along those lines? Would you accept that? We certainly wouldn't have a formal governing arrangement with New Zealand first. I've been very clear on that. If you had to depend on their votes, and at the moment the polls say you do, if you had to depend on their votes in order to lead a government, would you come to an accommodation of sorts? Look, what I've been clear about here is if Winston Peters holds the balance of power, I've said we won't work with him. Christopher Luxon has said that he will work with him. So I think that puts the onus on Christopher Luxon. No, the onus is on you to be clear with New Zealanders that you would go to a second election potentially rather than come to an accommodation with New Zealand first. Look, I think think everybody should try and avoid there being a second election. But actually, the onus comes on those who have said they will work together. National Act and New Zealand First have all said they will work together. So if those parties hold the majority in Parliament, then actually the, the onus is on them to make sure they find something that works. is not reached on that side and you receive an approach, are you open to rethinking your position? Well, my, my message to New Zealanders is if you don't not want Winston Peters the holding the balance of power, give your party vote to Labour. You're not ruling out offering your position. Look, I, that's not going to happen. Winston Peters has ruled out working with me. I've yep. ruled out working with him. I've heard this all before, before several election campaigns, and it's amazing how circumstances can change positions. <laughs> Thank you. All the best for tomorrow. Thanks for your time today. Chris Hipkins, leader of the Labour Party. We interviewed National Party leader Chris Luxon about his case to become Prime Minister in an earlier broadcast. You can find that interview by entering Chris Luxon's name in the 9 to noon search bar on our webpage.